Welcome to RUF, a safe place to process for the convinced and the unconvinced alike. We are in the Gospel of Luke this semester, and tonight we come to, I think, a familiar passage, at least the, the whole of it in Matthew's Gospel is really familiar, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is the way that Luke records it for us here that we're going to look at. So we're in Luke chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, and it might take us just a couple minutes. Um, it's not terribly long, but it's longer than usual. So let's read God's word together. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes and his disciples, on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, the other offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who use whom, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into pit? Into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the law out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. How would you have felt (laughs) to hear Jesus preach this sermon? I think that would have been pretty awesome. But you get me instead. Sorry. Um, You know, our world, follow me here. Our world is full of topias. Topia is is an affix, um, but in the English language grammar. Uh, Our world is full of topias, the two most common being utopia and dystopia, right? Uh, You think about pop culture, movies specifically, utopia, a place where everything is perfect, a place where everything is ideal, a place where there is no sickness, no death, no um, conflict, anything you think of. You think about the Matrix, I don't know if y'all remember this movie, uh, but the world as it existed or as people thought it existed was actually a computer simulation. It was a computer utopia because the machines were actually in control in the real world and it was kind of scary. I, Robot with Will Smith, you remember this movie, right? They had created robots and artificial intelligence where the robot's prime directive was to take care of and prevent the harm of humans. That was a utopia. I think of Matt Damon's Elysium, right, where there was this kind of planet off in the sky. It was actually on a ship where this new technology meant no more aging, no more sickness, no more death. It was a utopia. But more common in film today and in literature today is the dystopia, right? It's basically anything apocalypse. Zombie apocalypse, Walking Dead, um, 28 Days Later, all those movies, you name it. Um, dystopias, right? Global warming apocalypse, uh, apocalypses like uh, Day After Tomorrow, right? Um, or Nuclear Holocaust or whatever, you name it. The most famous of these movies that I think are kind of caught somewhere in between. Those ones where the world has been laid to waste and then somebody has seized control and they're trying to make utopia again. Two that come to mind immediately, Divergent. And Hunger Games, right? We all love those, right? I love Divergent. I never read that one, but it was a good movie. This is the thing. This is why I think Topias, if you're following, are so popular. Um, Because we are all, each one of us, as individuals and as communities of peoples, wandering through our whole life, amazed of Topias. We all have spent our entire lives waiting or floating through certain sets of context, populated by certain groups of people and governed by different sets of rules, right? You can list a bunch of different ones. College itself is utopia. Okay, but here's the thing. For some of you, college, when you were in high school, you thought of college as that far off distance utopia, right? That as soon as you got there, everything in your life would line up for you. And... I'm assuming most of you have found that is glaringly untrue. Because for more of you still, 
College has been nothing short of a dystopian nightmare for you. In many different ways, maybe ways that people don't even know. But regardless, all of us in our life at multiple times throughout our life have to navigate in one way or another through these topias, through these contexts, learn their rules, learn their people, and learn where we fit in. And we never quite figure it out, right? We're always bouncing around on the spectrum of those things. To this point in Luke's gospel... Luke has been building on something. He's been building on something that has been in the backdrop the whole time. And we've actually seen it explicitly mentioned a few times, but I have not actually explicitly pointed out. And this is what Luke has been building. Luke has been building this, that the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, into the world, into history, into time and space, has ushered the world into a new topia. If you're fine, I'm just using that word not properly, but I'm going to keep using it. In other words, Jesus showing up in the world, showing up in history, completely restructures and reorients life as we know it, whether you recognize it or not. Okay, and the Bible has a name for this topia. Anybody want to take a guess? The kingdom of God. Or the kingdom of heaven, as it's also called. Do you remember uh, last week, Luke 4.43? We've seen this. Uh, we're, we, we talked about miracles last week. And all these people are flocking to Jesus because they're hearing about all the things that he's doing. But do you remember what Jesus tells his disciples? Luke 4.43, he said this. I must preach the good news, what? Of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Okay? So everything Jesus did and said was caught up with this singular purpose, the revelation of the kingdom of God. And if you don't understand that, or if you don't see that, then there's no understanding the Sermon on the Mount, as it's popularly called. Luke or Matthew nor Jesus call it the Sermon on the Mount. It was actually St. Augustine that called it that um, in the 4th or 5th century A.D. So we look tonight at the fact that Jesus preached. Jesus preached a sermon, but more than that, Jesus preached about the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about tonight, okay? Three things as always, and the first one is this, upside down. The upside down nature of this kingdom. What is glaringly obvious as you just browse over this Sermon on the Mount is the glaring, that, that it is the upside down nature of this kingdom, okay? Just a quick, quick read through. Glance over it with your eyes, right? Who are the blessed people in this kingdom? The poor, the hungry, the weepers, the hated, the rejected. In other words, the lowly, what we know as the lowly are those who are blessed in this kingdom. Who's cursed? The rich, The satisfied, the laughers, the respected. In other words, those whom we know to have it all together are those who don't in this kingdom. Enemies and abusers are loved, blessed, and prayed for in this kingdom. People give and get as they deserve and nothing else. And they also get and give as they don't deserve. No one judges anyone more than they do their own self. In other words, this is it. Life in this kingdom is completely foreign to anyone and everyone's own experience. If you read through what Jesus talks about, what this kingdom is going to look like, you know right off the bat that this is completely foreign to anyone and everyone's own experience. No one has experienced what Jesus is talking about here. 
It's completely upside down. It's completely different from the world. Anyone who reads that feels the full weight of that. Jesus says a key marker of his kingdom will be that it turns the world upside down. In a hint, that's why they hated him. Um, It's actually interesting, in Acts chapter 17, we read about Paul and Silas going into Thessalonica and preaching the gospel, and many people believing. But as was usual, when they traveled around and preached the gospel, there were some people that were pretty upset. And so there's some people that raise up a mob, and they can't find Paul and Silas, so they just catch up some Christians, and they drag them to the magistrate. And this is what they tell the magistrate in Acts chapter 17. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Trying to get the city authorities to do something about it. Here it is. The gospel turns the categories of the world completely upside down. The gospel of the kingdom turns the categories of this world completely upside down. And so a definitive mark of whether or not you are about the business of this kingdom is whether or not the gospel of the kingdom has turned the categories of your life completely Upside down also. Think about it. Do you ever stop? That's a big one. We just leave that question right there. Do you ever stop? Do you ever stop and look at the motion and flow of your life? I mean, I think it's safe to say life is kind of like a river or a stream or something that is flowing towards a point, right? Do you ever stop and look at the flow and direction of your life and ask the question, what is the force behind it? What is behind the things that I want? What is behind the things that I say in front of people? The things I say not so in front of people. What is the force behind the things that I do when people are watching and when people aren't watching? I used to have my old my Bible that I grew up with. I, don't, I can't remember. I think I got the sticker from a girl. That's funny. Uh, I'm sorry. I uh, just remembered that. But I used to have this sticker at the front of my Bible. It was like one of those cheesy, cheesy Christian stickers where it's, it was just like this big. But it had all these like ugly monster looking fish, right? And then right in the middle, it had one of those Christian fish going the other way, right? And it said against the flow on it. It was so christian of me. Um, but seriously... Have you ever stopped and looked at the flow and direction of your life and wondered what is the force behind it? And what direction is it going in? The gospel of the kingdom turns the categories of the world and our world completely upside down. Look at it again. Those who are least deserving are the ones that are going to find the most open arms in this kingdom. The ones who are the most undesirable are the ones who find affirmation in this kingdom. Those who are broken and oppressed are the ones who find freedom and healing in this kingdom. Those are the truths of this kingdom. Now think about it. College is a time for so many of you where you finally figured out actually how hard it is to make it to the top of the ladder. Right, for a lot of you in high school, you know, a big fish in a small pond, the ladder was quite, kind of easy for you. You didn't have to do much to get to the top of it, and you sure as heck didn't have to do much to stay there. But now you've gotten to college and you wonder yourself, how am I going to get to the top again? What are you going to do if you get there? How are you going to stay there? What are you going to do if your best efforts don't even get you close to the top? What are you going to do? 
And where are you going to find the answer? It doesn't take a rocket surgeon, it's one of my favorite things, to figure out that we all long to be accepted. Every single, this is why social media is never going away. We all want affirmation. We all want little red hearts on Instagram. We all want thumbs up on uh, Facebook. We all want retweets and stars on Twitter. We live for that stuff, right? We all long for acceptance and affirmation. What are you looking to for acceptance? What are you looking to to make you feel good? What, are, what, is it that, what is it about you that goes and gets acceptance? Guys, is it how athletic you are? <laughs> Honesty, I love it. Is it how beautiful you can sing, Chris Shaw? Is it how funny you are? Is it how many people laugh at your jokes? Is it that job that you think you have lined up after college that will finally make everything in your life come true? Ladies, ladies, is it how good you look in that dress? Is it whether or not you fit into the dress? Is it how many heads turn as you walk across campus? Or the gym? Or the beach? What is it? The gospel of the kingdom turns the categories of our world completely upside down. And when it really takes root in our lives, the world will take notice. Okay, this is too strange to the world, to the normal everyday experience, that if it really takes root in our life, people are going to take notice. Just to mention one story, um, there were the apologists, if you, if you read church history, which none of you do, um, in the early centuries of the church, we had what they were called apologists because in the early centuries of the church, uh, persecution and rampant misunderstanding of Christianity uh, was all around the world, okay? And so there were people that wrote to say what exactly the Christians believe or did. And not necessarily Christians wrote these apologies, okay? And this is one called the Epistle of Dionysus. You don't care, but here's a quote from it about Christians. They marry, as do all of us. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Another one, Lucian of Samosata, who was not a Christian, he said this of Christians. Their founder, Jesus Christ, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view all of their possessions as common property. The life of the early Christians in the early church stood out to the world as absolutely strange. And if we take in and are what Jesus commands here, the world will take notice. Because Christians should be at the front of the line for the widows, for the fatherless, for the orphan, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the sick. In other words, the Christians of the world should be the ones at the front lines for those who can give nothing back to us. That's what this kingdom is about. But sadly, in transition here to the second point. We all know that this can and is glaringly untrue of Christians. Do we not? That's the next one here. 
Unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations in the kingdom. Okay? You cannot read this and not see that it is contrary to the way of the world. But you also can't read it without realizing that if your life depended on following everything that Jesus said here, then we're all in trouble. Right? We'd all be up a creek. There's no... There's no objection so common and so personally stinging to the Christian than, yeah, but there's so many hypocrites. You know why that's so personal and stinging? Because we know it's true, right? There are admittedly great portions of church history filled with the church getting it absolutely wrong. And for long periods of time at that. My church... I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, a big church, a wealthy church, but a gloriously awesome church, in my opinion. Um, they uh, love the Bible. They love Jesus. They love giving their money to missions and to everything. And they have done so much over 200 years of their history for the advancement of the gospel in Mississippi and globally, right? But during the civil rights era, everybody knows what went on then, right? That church, my church, my dear church that actually supports this ministry very um, generously, stationed elders at every door to make sure that no black person entered to cause a ruckus. That happened. That was real. And it was wrong. I love my church, but I hate racism. And it happened. And there's no ignoring or forgetting it. If your problem, here's the thing though. If your problem with Jesus, with Christianity or the church is hypocrites, I've got good news for you. Jesus speaks no more scathingly about any other group of people than, you guessed it, hypocrites. You're in good company there. But we think to ourselves, well, shouldn't Christians, if they believe all this stuff, shouldn't they be better people than everyone else? In a sense, yes. If we were, Jesus is calling us to do this and be this, right? And if we were, we would be uh, better for it, right? But here's the thing. Christianity never claims that Christians are better people than other people. Do you remember last week? Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what is the church then? The, sinner, the church then is a collection of sinners. People who know they're sick. That's what the church is. But here's the alarming part of Jesus' teaching. Look at it. Look at verses 27 through 36. Or look at 37 through 44. We can all agree that if life and people did these things, life would be amazing. Would it not? Nobody would, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. This is kind of the part of the Bible where people who are skeptical of Christianity say, well, I like that stuff that Jesus said, right? But here's the question. Did Jesus really expect us to be this and do this? Yes. Because he's commanding it. He's commanding it. Jesus here, listen to this, get this. Jesus is giving the new law of the kingdom. Think about the parallels to Moses and uh, Israel here. Um, The passage right before that we didn't read, we're told that, Jesus has a bunch of disciples, and from, a, from the whole bunch of them, he chose how many? Twelve. 
And everybody there would have realized that was significant as there were 12 tribes of Israel. And think about it. He's up on the mountain communing with God alone. And then he comes down from the mountain to give the commandments. Like Moses, right? But this is a new law. And not in the sense that we've never heard of it because it's actually quite the opposite of that. But it's new in that it totally... It totally replaces the old way of doing, okay? Because think about this. The law in Jesus' day, the law in Jesus' day had become a burden and a slavery of do's and don'ts to the extensive rabbinic and pharisaical codes, okay? And the people of God, the Jews that God, that Jesus was born into, that people whom God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 would be a light to the nations, they'd actually grown exclusive and clannish. Racially prideful. And Jesus, though, comes and says, I am bringing a new way of blessed life. Blessed life. Look at the, look at the picture stories here real quick. Run through them with me. Look at verses 39 and 40. The blind leading the blind. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not just another teacher. I have authority because I am the authority. And he's calling us, when he's saying the blind leading the blind, what he's saying is, I'm calling you to see the world As I see it, as my father sees it, a way in which you prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world sees as desirable. Think about this. Some of y'all, many of y'all, all all of y'all, y'all think the advice of your friends is like Bible. (laughs) It amazes me sometimes the things that y'all are thinking about. Well, my friend said this, so I must be right. They're the same age as you. Think about that for a second. Just one second, please. The question here is, whose eyes are you seeing with? When you seek advice, when you seek counsel, when you're confused about something, whose eyes are you looking for? Are you looking for just affirmation of what you want? Are you actually looking for truth? Jesus says he's not the blind leading the blind. He wants us to see with God's eyes. Look at 41 and 42, the speck and the log, right? Uh, We love throwing this at people. Dude, look at the log in your own eye, man. Um, I don't know if you say it like that, but see the Pharisees, we think of them as the goons. They were actually very righteous people, but they had fine tuned the law in such a way that it completely missed the point of the life that God intended the law to give. And it actually become a bondage. And it, Jesus says, I don't come to give a call of duty. I've come to give a call of love. I want you to act, live as God acts. And that way is the way of love. Meaning we seek to do right, not for seeking to do right, but seeking to do good. And we do it towards people who deserve it and people who don't. And verse 35 and 36 tell us why. Look at that. Unless we learn to love others this way, we will never know the love of the Father toward us. Or if we're not loving people in that way, then we have not fully understood the way that God loves us. The third picture here, look at 43 through 45, the tree and the fruit. What we say and what we do is supposed to be of one piece. That's what Jesus is saying. What we say and what we do is supposed to be of one piece. In other words, we're not supposed to be hypocrites. We're not supposed to be that. But here it is, y'all. The only way that this can be true of us, 
This is what the picture of the tree and the fruit tells us. The only way that this can be true of us is if it is true of us from our roots all the way outward to our fruits. And I didn't mean to be a poet there, but I did. Think about this, y'all. Moral reformation, changing the things that you do, but not touching the heart is as useful as taking a bunch of grapes and tacking it to a magnolia tree. Or better yet, a thorn bush. It's just as foolish looking as the image that we get of Adam and Eve putting leaves on their nakedness so God wouldn't know. That makes no sense. This way of life that Jesus is calling, what these pictures show us, is the way of life that Jesus is bringing is so completely new that it will take nothing short of a change of heart. Okay? And we think, okay, well, that's radically new. That's amazing. No, it's not. And I submit to you Ezekiel chapter 36, old, boring Old Testament, verses 24 through 27. You've got to hear this. The people were in a topia, a dystopia of exile. Exiled from the people of God. And this is God's promise to them in the midst of that. He says this. I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Who's going to do it? God's going to do it. And that's not a new thing with Jesus. It's from Genesis chapter 3 to the very end. But. But. You still might say, okay, I've read this. I've read the lead, read, read letters of this sermon, but how can Jesus really expect this of us? That's the final point here, quickly. The ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom is in the king. The ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom is in the king. One of my favorite book quotes of all time. I read this book before the movie came out. It was the first time I ever did that in my life. The Return of the King, um, the third book in The Lord of the Rings. The hands of the king are healing hands. And so shall the rightful king be known. I love that quote. Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. Jesus preached a new way of life in the kingdom, and Jesus made it clear that he was indeed the king. So we ask ourselves, where is this kingdom? How will I know it when I see it? How can I be a part of it? How will I know what to do once I'm in it? And the Gospels and the Bible's answer over and over again is that the kingdom is wherever Jesus reigns. That's it. The kingdom is wherever Jesus reigns. Think about the purpose of the gospels. We get four gospels. We are gifted with four gospels, not just one, four. And what are all of them? The center of all of them, every single one of those writers wants you to know who Jesus is and they want you to be sure of it. All of the gospels center on who Jesus is, what he said, and what he's done. And then, if you take that, if you understand that, you say, well then I cannot understand any teaching of Jesus apart from that. 
And you cannot understand the Sermon on the Mount apart from that. And this is it. Because living, doing what Jesus said can never be divorced from right relationship with him. That's it. Living or doing what Jesus says here and elsewhere can never be divorced from right relationship with him. We rightfully tremble when Jesus says things like he says in this passage. Because we know we are freaking terrible at it. Individually, as families, as churches. Some of you know that more, uh, um, know that better than others. But we have to see that it can only change us. The things that this preacher preaches can only change us when we see that it only happens. Change only happens when we submit to the rule and reign of the one who preaches it. Living this out, following through, being on fire, being sold out. Every single phrase you've ever heard at any youth conference you've ever been to. All of it is fundamentally tied to bowing down to the authority of Jesus. And if you are honest, just be honest, that is your problem with it. That is our biggest problem with it. Look at the fourth picture there in 46 on. So familiar. Matthew says, house on the rock, house on the sand. Here, Luke has Jesus saying, house built down to the rock and house versus a house built on top of the ground. One way or another, he doesn't say if the floods come, it says when the floods come. One way or another, floods will come. And Jesus says, either you will stand upon the one who has already withstood it all. Or the house of cards that you have built from yourself is going to come crashing down. And its ruin will be spectacular. I just want to say this in closing. And I do not want to be emotionally manipulative here. But this is real. It happened to me uh, today. My whole day took a turn. I'm excited about writing the sermon. But uh, like an idiot, I got on the internet. And the whole, my whole day took a turn when I saw once again, if you remember the first, uh, first week of RUF of the semester, I saw once again the horrific pictures coming out of the Middle East. Dead children. The thing about this time is that it wasn't from the boogeymen of Hamas or ISIS or ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but it was from bombs from the good old U.S. of A. Last night. You know, I look at stuff like that. We see stuff like that. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Everything is not okay. In fact, nothing is okay. There's something wrong with dead children the thing about it is, is it takes images like that to bring it home to us when stuff like it is happening in so many different shapes and forms all around us and on this campus, in the halls, in the dorms, in the houses. The world needs something. We need something. We need a new way of doing something. We need a new life. 
And this is the whole picture. We are not going to find it in us. We're not. People have been trying to find it in us as long as there has been people on this earth. We need Jesus. We need a king. We need a kingdom. My favorite quote about the Sermon on the Mount comes from Sinclair Ferguson. And it's in your handout. This is not a sermon about an ideal life in an ideal world, but about the kingdom of life in a fallen world. I just ask you this one question. What if it was true that a kingdom like this is coming into this world right now? And the king of it is already sitting on the throne. What if it's true? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a king. We need you. We need a kingdom. We need a place where it's safe. We need a place where everything is not broken. Where everything is not falling apart. Where everything is not filled with hatred and anger. We need nothing short of a miracle. But somehow you say that it's true. That not only is it coming into the world, but that it's here. And not only is it coming into the world, but one day the king will return. And his hands will be healing hands. We need the truth of that tonight. And we pray that you'd give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.